Well, uh, let's pray and then we'll read uh, Obadiah together. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Obadiah. We thank you that he was obedient to the call you put on his life to write these things down for us. And so we pray that, uh, you know, we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So we ask that you would do all those things in our lives today as we come to grips with uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so turn to the book of Obadiah. Um, it's in the what that part of the Bible that we usually call the Minor Prophets. Uh, so if you're not really sure where to find it, then if you let your Bible fall open about halfway, you'll probably get to Psalms, and and then you need to turn a little bit further to the right. And if you get uh, you get Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, then you've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then Obadiah. Uh, so Obadiah is the only book in the Old Testament that ha- is a single sh- chapter. In fact, it's the shortest book um, in the Old Testament. So let's read Obadiah together. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain... 
so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there'll be, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stumble, stubble and they shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Well, uh, we've finished our first foray into the book of Acts and we've come to the end of a section there and we'll resume that next year but uh, we're going to start in a few weeks preparing for Christmas with an Advent series so we've got three weeks in between and so I thought it would be good fun to have a look at three short books. Now Nathan very cleverly pointed out that on my overhead, how are we going there? We've got this, have we got some problems here? Maybe it's because that's come out, maybe that's the problem. How's that? That's better. Uh, there's five short books. In fact, the Bible has five books that are only one chapter long. The only one in the Old Testament is Obadiah, there's Philemon 2 and 3, John and then Jude. So over the next three weeks, uh, we're looking at Obadiah today. Next week, Nathan will look at Philemon and then a couple of weeks from now, I'll be back and speaking about 3rd John. So we'll do 2nd John and Jude another time perhaps. But these three little books can sometimes get overlooked, particularly Obadiah. Has anybody ever heard Obadiah preach before? Harry has. Was it by Ray? Yeah. Well, look, to be honest, in my experience, I've only heard it preached once, and that was earlier this year by Ray Patchett. So um, it's one of those ones that's very easy, easy to overlook. Now, I, I used this graphic another time when we were preaching about Isaiah, but I'd like to use it again just as a bit of a reminder. Uh, we all know that the Bible's divided into two parts, Old and New Testament. One thing that often gets overlooked is that most of the Bible is Old Testament. Now, if it's all God's word and a bit over three quarters of it is Old Testament and we don't read that bit, that is a bit of an insult to the author who's God. So we've got to be careful that we take in the whole of God's word. But the, the Bible is like a library divided into different sections. There's the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch uh, or the books of Moses. Uh, there's the history books. They take up 23%, almost a quarter of the, the whole Bible's story. Um, there's the wisdom and the Psalms. Uh, and then there's the prophets. Now the prophets, along with the, the historical literature, are the biggest single chunk of the Bible. Um, the New Testament's broken up into a few different categories itself, but the New Testament really only occupies about 22% of the total of the Bible. Now the prophets are a little bit tricky uh, because we like to read from left to right. And where do the prophets fit into the story? The prophets overlap with the history. And so the history covers from 1200 to about 400 B.C., uh, the prophets occupy the last about one third of Israel's history. So while things were going on in Israel where they, they sinned against God, they, 
they forsook his ways. The kingdom was divided after the reign of King Solomon. So you've got the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Israel, or usually called Israel. And you've got the southern kingdom called Judah. The, king, the, the nation was divided. They've got separate kings. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. And then later on, the Babylonians finished Jerusalem off. The prophets were occupied the, with, with speaking to Israel at that time. The time when they had so completely turned their back on God that he was threatening to end the empire, the, the kingdom at all. Um, and so the prophets occupy about the last third of the, the, the time covered by the history books. Now, as you look at the, the way the prophets are structured, we've got the, what sometimes called the major prophets. And the only thing major about them is they're longer. The minor prophets, there's nothing unimportant about them. It's just that they are much shorter books. But if you put all 12 of the minor prophets together, they're just about as long as Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so that's the way the Hebrew Bible put them. They, they were one collection, the book of the 12. And if you look at the, the minor prophets, the so-called minor prophets, you'll see that each of them covers a different aspect of the prophecy that God's people need to hear. So if we took little Obadiah out, we'd miss something very important. So just because he's short doesn't mean that he's unimportant. The minor prophets take up 22% of the total that's given over to the prophets in the Old Testament. So the way we've got the prophets laid out in our Bible, Isaiah is the first, Malachi is the last. You can see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is a little book. Um, not really sure who wrote it, but it looks it could, could have been Jeremiah. So it's tucked in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Then from Hosea on, we're into the Book of the Twelve uh, and what we call the Minor Prophets. Uh, some of the prophets wrote to Israel, some of them wrote to Judah. Right. So the first three prophets, Amos, Jonah and Hosea, were prophesying to the northern kingdom, telling them to change their ways, which they didn't do. And so they were taken into exile by the Assyrians. But the prophets to Judah in the south was Micah. And so I've got... In white, they're the, what we call minor prophets. And then in dark blue, you've got the major prophets. So um, what you'll see is that they're not arranged in chronological order in the way our Bible's laid out. Can you see that? So that's sometimes a bit confusing, but when you do a little bit of work, you'll realise what's going on. So then Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, another major prophet. Um, Daniel, Ezekiel, Obadiah. Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. So the numbers after them are the dates BC, the dates before Christ that these books were written, um, as best as we can work out. Now there's one outlier, that's Joel. We're not really sure when Joel wrote. There's nothing in the book that indicates a particular historical activity. The rest of the books we can be fairly certain about the kinds of history that they're interacting with and the reason that they're saying the things that God told them to say. So that's the, uh, that's the order of the prophets both in our bible and also about when they wrote in uh, in terms of time we're thinking about obadiah now obadiah wrote about 586 bc now if you know anything about israel's history that's a very significant date because the babylonians came in and conquered jerusalem and leveled it and burnt the temple to the ground in either 587 or 586. So Obadiah is writing at a time when Jerusalem is rubble. It's been destroyed. And so anybody that thought that Jerusalem was God's city 
and the temple was God's throne must have had their world shattered. And so Obadiah is writing at that time when the hopes of pious Jews had been dashed and they must have been asking as they were transported to live hundreds of miles away in Babylon what is going on. Are God's promises true and can they be trusted? And it's into that context that Obadiah writes. Now just a little bit about prophecy. Very often when people speak of the prophets, there's this sort of underlying assumption that they're predicting. They're saying this is what's going to happen one day down the track. In fact, most prophecy concerns current events and what God thinks about them. So the prophets are speaking into a particular local situation and explaining what God wants them to do, the people to do about it. Now, some of what they say uh, is predictive, and certainly there's elements that are looking to the very far future, but mainly the prophets are occupied with an urgent message for right now. And so if we're to understand Obadiah or any of the prophets, we need to get our heads around what was going on that caused God to send the prophet to have these words written down at all. The book of Obadiah, I've summed it up this way, it talks about the dangerous deception of pride. Now, does that sound like a time, timely message for us? Right. Funnily enough, people have always had a problem with pride. And so as we look at why Obadiah wrote to them back then, we'll find lessons that really should be occupying our minds now because pride is a perennial problem. Uh, back in the medieval era, uh, when most people couldn't read and when a lot of Bible teaching was done through art, not always successfully, unfortunately. Uh, back in those days, uh, they came up with a list of what they called the seven deadly sins. Have you heard that phrase before, the seven deadly sins? Um, number one on the list was pride. Uh, when any time they, they listed the, the seven deadly sins, the sins that left untreated uh, would lead to a, an eternal separation between a person and God, pride was always number one on the list. The others were greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, gluttony and sloth. It's not, they didn't say these are the only sins, they just said these are the worst, but pride was top of the list. Now think about it. Is pride a problem for you? Is it a problem for me? Is it a problem for anyone? Well, I confess it is. I confess it is. I'll tell you my problem. I like it when people say, I enjoyed that sermon, Steve. I do, right? So that makes me think, why am I preaching? Am I only preaching for pats on the back? I like it when people say kind things about me. Do I only do nice things that will earn that just so that people will give me a pat on the back? I am concerned if my reputation suffers. So am I only doing stuff because I want to build myself up? Well, I don't know what your problem is, but I dare say pride is in the mix because we all like people to think well of us. Um, pride has... I think it's, it's well placed at the top of the list of seven because it's been a problem for God's people from the very start. So in Genesis chapter 3, I think pride's at the very basis of the original sin. So when the serpent comes to Eve in the garden... And he says, God knows that when you eat of it, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve thinks, Ripper, 
where can I get a nibble? Right? Because she wants to be like God. The serpents come along and tempted her with the prospect of being a little bit more than she is already. As though Adam and Eve didn't have enough. But then in Genesis 11, not very many chapters later in the Bible, we read about this this opposition to God that expresses itself in the building of the Tower of Babel. And the people that built it, their ambition was so they could make a name for themselves. Straight after that in Genesis chapter 12, we read about Abraham or Abram and God made a name for him. And that's the way it should be. Let God establish your reputation. If you try too hard to make it for yourself, it's going to become an idol to you. But that's how it was. But then, of course, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, we read the summary of all this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So what does it mean to be proud? It means to have a haughty spirit. And that's something to be very wary of. And so it it came literally true in, in Adam and Eve. It came literally true at the Tower of Babel. But God is opposed to the proud. And God will act to end human pride. Because human pride is in rebellion against him. And so in Obadiah 3, have a look at it there. Um, This is the diagnosis that that God through the prophet places for the, the people of Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. So the pride that is occupying them has tricked them, has fooled them. And it's dangerous. It's not something that they can afford to ignore. This is dangerous. Now, what is pride? Well, it's humanity's basic sin. It means putting yourself and your ego at the centre of existence. And what that means is that it will put you in rebellion against God and it also will provide the the foundations for injustice against others because pride always wants me first. Pride always says, well, it's okay for you, but I've got to have my way before yours will be considered. And that's a constant temptation that we need to keep working at. But that's what pride looks like. Uh, Ego at the centre, rebellion against God, war with other people, even in marriages. And so the first nine verses, the nation that's being addressed here is Edom. And this is another reason that makes Obadiah quite a strange book. Because all the other prophets speak either to Israel or Judah. But this is an entire book devoted to speaking to a non-Israelite nation. But why would they have listened to an Israelite's prophet? Well, they probably didn't. Obadiah is speaking for people who have just been exiled from Jerusalem. He's speaking to them as though they're listening in to what God is saying to the people of Edom. Now let's do some work with you. It's a vision of Obadiah. It's a vision given in words. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So the nations are being called to execute God's judgment on Edom. Now who's Edom? Now do you remember back to Genesis 25? That's where we first read of it. So Esau, the older brother of Jacob, who was a twin, but Jacob came out second. Uh, when he comes back in from hunting and he's done his cooking and all that, he's, he's, uh, or Jacob's been busy doing the cooking, but Esau is hungry 
And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. So Esau had two names, Esau and Edom, just as Jacob had two names, Jacob and Israel. So Edom is the other name for Esau. Now if you know the story of Esau and Jacob, from this moment onwards they were at war with each other. Esau wanted to kill Jacob, so Rebekah, Jacob, Jacob's mother, or the, both of their mothers said, well you've got to get out of here, go to Uncle Laban, he'll look after you. And, and so goes the story of Jacob and Esau. But um, chapter 36 of Genesis, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. So when you see the word Edom, you've got to think Esau. It's just another way of saying, when you see Israel, you need to think Jacob. They're just two interchangeable names for these, uh, these people. So here's the world as it looked at the time of Obadiah. Babylonian Empire had, had grown. Uh, it had taken in Jerusalem and all the way further south, almost to the border of Egypt. The Babylonians were the dominant world empire at that time. Well, what was going on closer to home? Uh, there's Judah and Jerusalem. And down to the southeast is the territory that was bequeathed to these people by Esau. Edom was a near neighbour of Israel to the southeast. Um, so they're, they're close by, a couple of hundred kilometres away. I did it on Google Maps. How, far, how long would it take to get from, uh, from Petra to Jerusalem? About 220 kilometres, right? A couple of days' journey by camel, I dare say. Um, so why Edom? Well, in Genesis 25, we read that Isaac and Rebekah had the twins Esau and Jacob. The Edomites are descendants of Esau, but they're also descendants of Abraham. God made promises to the firstborn, but he actually said that Jacob is going to be treated as the firstborn, even though he was born second. And so, as it turned out, Esau traded his firstborn privileges for a bowl of stew. That's how little they mattered to him, which tells you something about the character of Esau. He was prepared to trade in the privileges of being the firstborn just for a meal. But in Romans 9, we read that God had his own purposes in all of this. It was to, to reveal his purpose in election. But from that moment on, there was constant hostility and it came out in the Exodus. And so when God rescues his people out of Egypt and takes them into the promised land, the journey that they took, took them through the land of Edom. And Moses went to the leaders of the people of Edom and said, uh, we just want to walk through. We're not going to take any land. We're not going to let our, our cattle wander or anything like that. And we'll even pay your money. And Edom said, no. So this is a bitter family feud. Have you ever been part of a family feud? Don't put your hand up, but I mean, you hear about them. Uh, my son was telling me about a friend of his who's instructed his parents-in-law that they will have no further access to their grandchildren until they get vaccinated. It's a family which is tearing itself apart, right? It's happening. But I know people who have maintained family feuds for no other reason than pride. Pride is, uh, is Edom's besetting sin. Right? It doesn't have to be this way. The pride that causes people and empires to fall, it doesn't have to be that way, but it's so hard to get over it because it begins by admitting you're wrong. I knew a lady, she was a next-door neighbour of my grandparents, and... Um, I used to go and visit them when I, my grandparents lived in Brisbane. I used to go next door to see the people and, and she was telling me about her sister who she hadn't spoken to in 25 years and she was proud of it. 
And she said, last Christmas she sent me a gift and I sent it back unopened. Because whatever wrong had been done in the past was something she was not going to forgive. That's pride. That's what Edom was like. It may have been that the Edomites burnt the Jerusalem temple when the Babylonians invaded. So, in Obadiah, the people of Judah, now in exile, might be asking, is Jacob really the one who's going to receive God's promises? Um, They might have been saying, why are we going into exile while Esau's descendants are going really well? That's the theme of Psalm 10. You look on people who look like they're having all the fun, getting by very, very well, and you think, but they're wicked. How come they're doing so well? And so the question must have been, did God really choose Jacob over Esau to bring the blessing he promised to Abraham through to the world? Well, verses 1 to 9 tell us that Edom's going to be brought down. Yahweh pronounces three sentences. They're going to be completely humbled uh, because of the, uh, the pride of their heart. Uh, Edom asks a question, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, that's a, a reference to Edom's geography. Uh, the southeast region beyond the Dead Sea was, was rocky and mountainous and Edom had dug itself in and they'd made what were almost unconquerable fortresses because there were lots of narrow valleys and if you had an enemy invader coming in, you just had to put your men up the top armed with lots of rocks and no one would get through. So Edom thought that they'd set themselves up in a way that could not be conquered. And so these these rocky cliffs and all through them they used to live and that's where their palaces were. Uh, Narrow little ravines like this were the only way of getting in. Has anybody been to Petra? Yeah, some of you have seen it. Well, Petra wasn't built by the Edomites. It was built by descent, by by people who overtook the same area. But this is what Petra looks like in Jordan now. And and the the people who eventually built there, and these things come from the Nabataean people, but they took over what had once been Edom. And they, they carved out incredible buildings and lived in the rocks. So this is where Edom was, and this is where the Edomites lived. But God says to them, the pride of your heart has deceived you. They ask, who will bring me down to the ground? In other words, who can conquer us? And the answer is, I will bring you down, says the Lord, because of their pride. Well, there were three sentences, and this is the second. They're going to be completely pillaged. Most burglars, when they come, only leave with what they can carry. I interrupted a burglar at our place a couple of years ago and he only had a backpack on, so I figured at least I know he hasn't got my mandolin. Um, but they, can only, they usually only make off with what they can carry. Yahweh says to them, you're going to be completely plundered. There won't be anything left. He says, most people, when they go and pick grapes, they leave at least a few for the poor people to come and glean after them. Not your vineyard. It's going to be completely stripped bare. Edom's allies are going to betray them. The people that they thought they could trust and ate meals with, they're going to give up on them. But then they're going to be completely dismayed. Everything that's made them proud will be totally destroyed. They were proud of their wise men, they were proud of their warriors. All gone, says God, in anticipation of it happening. Who's this written for? It's written for God's people. Is God going to keep his promises to us? What about Edom? God says... Leave it to me. This is going to happen. Just stand by. And so why is all this happening? Well, in verse 10 we read, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. It's going to be done to them because they did nothing. They stood aloof when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem. 
But in verses 12 to 14, it's not that they did just did nothing, they, they did what they shouldn't have done. Do not gloat, do not rejoice, do not boast. They took pleasure in the destruction of their cousins. Have you ever heard the, um, the word schadenfreude? You do? I had to look it up. It's not a word in my vocabulary. It means enjoying the suffering of others. Now, we don't have an English word for it. We've had to borrow the German. But it's out there, isn't it? Can you imagine anybody enjoying the suffering of other people? That's what Edom was like. When the Babylonians came in and ruined Jerusalem, when they killed the inhabitants, when they took them all, off the, those that were, remained off to Babylon, the Edomites gloated. They boasted. They enjoyed it. Now, apparently, there was a 300,000-time increase in searches on the Merriam-Webster website for the word schadenfreude when it was revealed that Donald Trump had contracted COVID. All of a sudden, there was incredible traffic on the internet wanting to know what this word schadenfreude meant. But this is not a biblical thing. I hope that nobody here would take pleasure in hearing that someone that doesn't believe in vaccination would contract the disease. I hope that that would not be a quality that would be found amongst us. Proverbs 24 verse 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So don't take pleasure in the downfall of someone else. And that's what Edom was condemned for. But verses 15 to 18 talk about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. It's near, not just for Edom, for all the nations. Edom stands as a representative. They're representative of Israel, all of Israel's enemies, because they're the closest relation. And that makes the enmity of Edom even worse because they're related by blood. Not like the Philistines, not like the, the Moabites. These are close relatives and yet they've got it in for Israel. And so the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall be returned on your own head. That's a principle we find in the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What that means is punishment should be proportionate. It means don't exceed what's been done to you. But in biblical terms, the task of paying that punishment out belongs to God and him alone. Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine. And Paul quotes that in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Christians should not be vengeful people. We shouldn't take pleasure in the suffering of another. We shouldn't seek to take revenge when we're caused to suffer by another. So Proverbs 20 verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. So these are the sorts of things that the people in exile needed to hear. Leave vengeance for Edom to God. And that's a message for us all. So the day of Yahweh is drawing near. If you were to read Psalm 137, you'll read there. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. They were partners with Babylon in the destruction of Jerusalem. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, Obadiah 16 says, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now, probably what that refers to is in the destruction of Jerusalem, when the temple was destroyed, the victors gloated over, they, they thought they'd beaten Israel's God. And so they went into the most holy place and they ransacked it. They probably got drunk, 
drinking out of the goblets that were used in the temple. And they thought, how clever are we? Well, Yahweh sits back and says, well, you might think you've got away with it, but as you've done, it will be done to you. And that cup of wrath is one that you're going to be drinking. You want to drink from my sacred cup, says Yahweh, you'll drink from the cup of my wrath. Now you'll find the cup of God's wrath in the Psalms, you'll find it all through the prophets, so Isaiah 51 and other places. But, but God's anger is portrayed as being like a drink that you drink that's bitter and will kill you. And again, it comes up again in the book of Revelation, the cup of God's anger. God cares about how people treat him. He cares about Zion. Zion's still there, the mountain on which Jerusalem builds. It's not occupied by a temple anymore, but the Dome of the Rock, the, the, the Muslim mosque. But in Mount Zion, according to verse 17, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. That's another way of saying that the people will come back from Babylon. Obadiah say to them, you might be here now, but you won't be here forever. Keep trusting God, he'll take you back. As he brought you out of Egypt through the Exodus, he'll take you out of Babylon and you'll be rescued from your exile. And when they come back, the contrast will be that there'll be no survivor for the house of Israel. Why? Because Yahweh has spoken. And when Yahweh speaks, it's as good as done. And so Babylon in 553 BC and then Rome finally in AD 70, the Edomites don't exist anymore. There's no remnant, wiped out completely. It took a long time, but God's patient. And in that time of patience, people have time to turn from their pride. Edom didn't. And so they stand as a symbol of what God will do to all who continue to rebel and who continue to hold out in pride from submitting to him. And so as the book comes to an end, all the proud will be brought low and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. So the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. All those difficult to pronounce names there, what it's saying is you will come home and you'll even exceed your borders. You'll go further than you've ever been before. The places where you live, there'll be places that God's people had never lived before. They're going to come out of Babylon, they're going to return to Zion and, and the kingdom will be God's. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule or to judge on Mount Esau and the kingdom shall belong to Yahweh. So what are we to make of all this? Well, they did come back from Babylon, but if you were to read the book of Malachi, you'd realise that all the same problems that had got them into the exile were there again. If you read the New Testament, you'll realise that even when Jesus came, people still thought of themselves as prisoners. They still thought of themselves as being in exile. So these people in Malachi's day are saying, well, is the exile actually over? Are we loved? Does God keep his promises? And Malachi's answer was, look at Edom. Because by then, the destruction of Edom was well and truly on the way. So Edom is a warning to all proud nations, to all proud people. But what about the kingdom? Well, we know that Jesus taught that he came to release the captives. He came to put an end to the exile. In Jesus, the kingdom has come, but is still coming. The kingdom which will rule all kingdoms has begun. Do you know Frank Sinatra and his song, I Did It My Way? Uh, I, used, I worked in the funeral industry for a year, and uh, I heard this song a few times at funerals, but I did a little bit of homework on it, and a British funeral company did a survey of the most popular funeral songs. 
And this is about 10 years ago, but at that time, for men, not for women, but for men, the number one popular song at funerals in England was I Did It My Way. And that, friends, is a summary of pride. Now, if you want to hang on and do it your way, then you'll go the way of Edom. There's only one way to make a success of life, and that's to do it God's way. I did it my way should not be a a summary song for any Christian funeral because that's the very epitome of pride. James chapter 4 verse 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It was in humility that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. The Edomites, the Babylonians, drank from the cups of the temple. They took it as a joke. But Jesus, in humility, drank the cup of God's wrath so that we didn't have to taste it. That's the whole idea of him being a substitute that we sang about earlier. And so James, a little later in chapter 4, says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So Christians, don't take revenge. Leave that to God. Turn from your pride because pride makes you God's enemy. Humble yourself and receive the salvation that Jesus died to win for you or you'll end up destroyed like Edom. The message of Obadiah is that pride must give way. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the forgiveness of Jesus, the infusion, the the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can turn from our pride and humble ourselves before God in the same way that Jesus did. Because Jesus' life was characterised by that humility. So Obadiah, a little book with a powerful message. It's a message for the whole world. Uh, You cannot maintain pride before a mighty God, a holy God, a God who will not receive enemies who dig their heels in and say, I did it my way. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we confess that we're proud people. It's very easy for us to do that. We default to it quite naturally and we excuse ourselves so readily. So we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would work in us new hearts where we would humble ourselves before you. We thank you for Jesus who is the very model of humility, who uh, drank the cup, who took the punishment for sins that were not his own so that when we by faith come to him, our sins can be forgiven, we can be set free and, and we can be led out of our captivity to sin and, and our exile from you. So we thank you that your kingdom is coming and we ask that you'd help us each day to, uh, to prize holiness and humility and to, uh, to walk gladly with you uh, as we follow our humble saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.